This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Good Things, the show where we speak to good people doing good things. I'm Lim Suan. Originally from Miller Miller in Queensland, Australia, Dr. Lachlan McIver is a rural generalist who has treated patients and provided medical care for rural and remote communities across several countries, including around Australia and the Pacific Island countries. So I caught up with him recently to find out more about what he does as a rural generalist and also how he's seen worsening climate change, rising global temperatures, impact the health needs and well-being of remote and under-resourced communities, and really what needs to be done to mitigate the risks that these people are facing. So here's the first part of our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Lachlan. A pleasure. Thank you for having me, Saran. Now, um, you're a man of many hats. You know, you, you're a medical doctor, you're a writer, you're an activist, you're a musician as well, as I'm, uh, I'm aware. <laughs> but I'm going to focus a bit on a bit more on your medical profession first. Um, you know, when I was reading up about um, your profile, I read that you're a rural generalist and your specialization focuses on um, rural and remote medicine. Now, that's not something that um, we here are very familiar with either. So perhaps could you explain what that means in terms of, you know, what you do, um, who you treat, and where you'd work as well. Yeah, with pleasure, Simone. Thank you. So uh, rural generalists are very familiar to most people in terms of what we do as doctors, even if the term itself is not familiar. Mm. A rural generalist is a doctor who has been trained to deal with almost anything or almost everything up to a point. So uh, the organisation or the institution through which I trained in Australia is called the Australian College of Rural and Remote Medicine. Mm -hmm. It's a a specialty college and it is designed and established to train doctors to be able to work in in regional, rural and remote parts of Australia to be able to manage whichever patients come through the door with whatever problems they have. So as part of our training, we deal with adult medicine, paediatrics, maternal and and obstetric medicine, as well as emergency medicine, as well as care for uh, people with chronic diseases, as well as care for people who are dying. Um, And we often, in fact, almost always have some sort of subspecialty training as well. Mm. Uh, And in my case, that was in anaesthetics. So I'm talking to you today from Cairns, where I'm working a, a short term here at the hospital, refreshing my skills in anaesthetics. So that when I go back out to the rural hospitals, I can give anaesthetics to patients going to the operating theatre to have surgery um, or needing uh, aeromedical retrieval, for example, in helicopters. So I, I guess you can already get a sense of how broad the discipline is. Mm. Um, and we make a choice in, in taking on that kind of training to say, look, we want to be the, the kind of the jack of all trades, if that's a, a familiar expression. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means that we're masters of none, but we can do a bit of everything. That's that's always the kind of doctor that I want it to be. Mm. But you know, isn't that sort of training something that most doctors would undergo through and uh, undergo anyway? Up to a point, the thing about rural generalist medicine as a specialty is that it it takes you much deeper and further into that as a as a specialty discipline. All doctors, of course, get basic training as junior doctors. Mm-hmm. We rotate around in the hospitals to do bit of medicine, bit of surgery, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that often leads us to to further specialty training. The thing about being a rural generalist is you are essentially a sort of a subspecialist in multiple areas. Uh, you know, some of my colleagues that I've worked with 
um, have been uh, sort of very senior within the tertiary hospital system in paediatrics and obstetrics and emergency medicine and anaesthetics and intensive care. And that that's very rare. Usually mm-hmm. if you get to a senior level, you have already chosen that discipline and that's all you do. Um, and I have nothing but the greatest respect for my colleagues in other specialty disciplines, but having a, a sort of a narrow scope of practice and just doing one thing uh, or focusing on one topic or one body part uh, or one sort of sector of the population for the rest of my career was was not something that I felt I could do. My my attention span is too short and my interests are too, <laughs> too broad. Hmm. Um, was being a rural generalist something that you've always wanted to do? I guess when you were in med school, you know, was that a career path that you were exposed to then? So I, I went to medical school in a big city in mm-hmm. Australia and rural generalist medicine was not something that we were very much exposed to. And it took me a, a while to realise that that was in fact a, a career path that I could follow. Um, I, after having graduated from medical school, worked in different parts of Australia doing different types of jobs. And I found that really uh, my interests were so broad that they really covered the full breadth mm. of, the, of, the, of the spectrum. And in fact, the two things that I was most interested in early on in my career were emergency medicine and public health, which you could argue are almost at the opposite end of the spectrum. Emergency yes. medicine is focused on treating people when they're at their sickest and public health is trying to stop from getting sick in the first place. And so in, in pursuing both of those interests, which I still hold and I, and I still kind of work in both those fields, I'm in fact a, a public health specialist as well as a rural journalist. Mm-hmm. But I found that the, the only um, sort of area of work in which I could uh, sort of indulge both of those interests was in rural journalist medicine because working in a rural hospital, uh, you need to be able to deal with the emergencies. You need to be able to think about the public health problems and do everything in between treat the children treat the pregnant mothers you know deal with the the the, the day-to-day issues and the chronic diseases as well as the the, the acute short-term problems that people have so it took me a while to to find that calling mm-hmm. or to find the path that could 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 sort of enable me to follow my interests but once I found that path I I, I, I threw myself down it and never looked back now, I understand you've also been to many countries, many uh, places over the course of career. I guess what, just out of curiosity, what are some of the most remote or rural areas that you've worked in? Well, I spent the first several years of my career working in some of the most remote parts of Australia, mm-hmm. uh, and that has put me to deserts and islands and, and jungles in, in our country right here. Now, the, in Australia, the more remote you go, the mm-hmm. higher proportion of the population are, are Indigenous Mm-hmm. And as you would be aware, I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, um, Indigenous Australians, First Nations people in, in Australia, um, have in general far, far worse health uh, than, than non-Indigenous Australians. And that's the same in, in developed countries around the world. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was quite shocking for me to, to see early on in my career and informed my subsequent career choices. I worked then mostly in Indigenous communities for the rest of my training in Australia and decided that although I was interested to to go and work abroad and and um, work in in developing countries, it was that experience working in Indigenous communities in Australia that really helped me as I started to broaden my horizons. So when I finished my training as a rural journalist in Australia, the next uh, sort of uh, uh, region I, I I worked in was in the Pacific, in the Pacific Islands. I had the the very great fortune to. Um, 
get a, at a, a fascinating job with the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. And so I was responsible for leading a project covering 12 different Pacific Island countries. I was based in Fiji, but roaming around the region, helping these tiny little countries, beautiful, spectacular jewels of countries across mm-hmm. the Pacific Ocean, helping them, um, working with the ministries of health, helping understand what the, the those countries' vulnerabilities were to the health impacts of climate change and put in place measures to try and minimise those impacts and avoid those risks. And um, that was a topic that interested me so much that I ended up doing a, a PhD on that topic. And that led to, to further work with the World Health Organisation in Asia and in Africa, and is what eventually took me to to Geneva. But um, it's a pretty depressing uh, area of work and, and field of study and research, as you can imagine, Suan, because climate change is, is is not just bad for us as a global society; it is it is catastrophic for our health. And that that problem, that burden of the health uh, impacts of climate change, is very unequally distributed. Mm-hmm. That tends to be the world's. You know, poorest and and most remote and most vulnerable communities that are that are suffering most from that. Mm. If I could talk a bit more about that, then you know, because everyone is talking about climate change these days and how it's going to impact all of us um, to varying degrees, and these communities in remote areas are the ones who we keep hearing again and again are most vulnerable. What if, um, could, if you could elaborate more, Lachlan, what have you already seen in terms of how they are affected um, from climate change, especially in terms of, I guess, health needs or risks that, that are increasing day by day? Mm. So the health impacts of climate change uh, can be broadly divided into those that are very direct impacts and those that are indirect impacts. Direct impacts are obvious things like um, heat stress. So the planet is warming more rapidly than it ever has in its history. This is due to human influence, uh, burning fossil fuels, releasing carbon into the atmosphere and and heating the planet. So heat is a problem for for humans. Mm -hmm. As you would know, 2023 is the hottest year since records began, beating the record, which was last year. So heat is is a direct impact of climate change that affects our health. Similarly, uh, hydrometeorological disasters, so those are like floods, droughts, tropical storms, cyclones, hurricanes, typhoons, those that are directly linked to the weather and climate and have direct impacts and causing destruction and, and trauma and injuries and deaths, those are examples of direct impacts of climate change. And they're quite obvious. Less obvious are uh, indirect effects, such as, for example, changing the increasing temperature and changing rainfall patterns, changing the humidity and environment such that the habitats of organisms like mosquitoes that spread diseases like malaria or dengue fever, the habitats of those, we call them vectors, those those animals, including insects um, who spread disease, those habitats are expanding. Mm -hmm. The population, human population exposed to those diseases is increasing. And we are seeing, I mean, dengue fever is is a great, although terrible example, of the the numbers of cases of dengue fever increasing 10, 20, 50 times over the last few decades. Mm -hmm. This is not only due to climate change, globalisation, human population movement, uh, population growth, uh, uh, urban densification, these are other factors. But infectious diseases, including those spread by mosquitoes, including those spread by water and food, are all increasing due to climate change. Um, also, uh, uh, another example of an indirect effect is, for example, the changing rainfall patterns 
particularly with decreased rainfall, uh, affecting crop yields. So there's less less food security, and that can lead mm-hmm. to malnutrition crises. There are also effects on um, obviously water scarcity, water security, um, and and other infectious diseases, not just those spread by mosquitoes or spread by food or water. So, uh, and then of course there's the mental health impacts of climate change, which are very mm-hmm. difficult to measure, but if you're in, for example, a, a tiny Pacific Island country that's only a couple of metres above sea level, and as the sea is warming, it is rising, and as it rises, the salt uh, enters into the soil, and so the soil is no longer productive, and the water is becoming spoiled, and the crops are failing, and the fisheries are failing, and your land is disappearing. You have lack of food, lack of water, and increasingly lack of land. That has huge impacts on on one's mental health, as you can imagine. What are the 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 issues that these communities, for example, in the Pacific Islands, right? You you've worked with them quite a lot. It's not that they are unaware of what's happening. You know, we keep hearing from leaders, from community, from people within these communities, calling on the the global um, community to act because these are the most vulnerable people, right? What are the barriers that they're struggling with? Because we keep hearing that they're under-resourced, but what does that actually mean? One of the cruelest aspects of, of, the, uh, of the climate crisis, Suan, I think, is that the people most affected by the problem are generally those who have contributed the least to it. Mm-hmm. So whether you're a Pacific Islander uh, with your very land and livelihood and sovereignty and nationhood and identity threatened by climate change, or whether you live in in North Africa and you are being forced to move because of uh, crop failure and food insecurity and lack of water and resource competition and conflict, or whether you're in the Middle East and things are becoming hotter and hotter and hotter and almost unlivable, or whether you're in Madagascar and there's no just chronic drought and no uh, forests left and no food, um, these communities that are being most impacted by the problem have contributed almost nothing to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, what is really tragically missing and urgently required in the in the climate change uh, sort of discourse is the fact that this is a health problem that we are all experiencing. This is not a problem for the future or just a problem for people in faraway countries or poor people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a problem that affects all of us. And I think this is what people don't, don't realise. It's a problem that affects us all. There, are, As we are already seeing, there are parts of the world, including in, in you know middle and high-income countries, that are becoming more and more precarious in terms of their um, safety and suitability for human habitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the climate change impacts on the on the, the sort of global food system um, is is becoming more and more evident, um, and we can't ignore the fact that this is an unprecedented emergency that we are living through. And even if we don't care about the environment and we don't care about people in faraway places, um, even if we don't care about the economic costs of climate change, well, human beings are fundamentally very human-focused creatures, Mm -hmm. and surely if we care about nothing else, we would care about our health, the health of our parents, our grandparents, our children. And so my sort of career these days, my work these days, is really dedicated to making sure that health 
is central to to discussion around what the how urgent action is with respect to climate change and what steps are that we need to take. So as we come into COP28, mm-hmm. the Conference of Parties this year in Dubai, the annual gathering of the world's governments to address the climate crisis, I'm pleased to to uh, to see that that health is on the agenda this year. The World Health Organization is going to be there. Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF, the doctors that board is going to be there. Um, but it can't be left to just the you know, large international health NGOs to be putting health at the centre of the climate crisis. This needs to be acknowledged by the world's governments and addressed appropriately and urgently. We're going for a quick break now for some messages, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back for more from that conversation with Dr. Lachlan MacGyver. So stay tuned to Good Things on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Good Things with me, Lim Su-An. On the show with me today is Dr. Lachlan McIver. He's a rural generalist as well as the Tropical Diseases and Planetary Health Advisor with Médecins Sans Frontières. He joined me via Zoom from Cairns, Australia. And here's the second part of our conversation where I started by asking him how working as a rural generalist has changed his perspective on his role as a doctor. It is probably helped me see a couple of things more clearly, Sue Ann, than if I had perhaps just been, uh, if I had remained in, in the city in a tertiary hospital system. Mm-hmm. One key message is that health is a human right. I think this is something that uh, certainly in the high-income countries we, we take for granted. But when you work in remote communities where there are, generally speaking, too few, not just doctors, there are too few health professionals, there are not enough health services, around the world, the majority of the of the um, health needs are in rural communities, whereas most of the doctors and health professionals are in the cities. So mm-hmm. there's this imbalance that exists around the world, and so being in a being in a community where the health needs are huge, but the health the health service is inadequate, makes you understand more clearly and and, and sort of you, you you feel the problem more uh, more deeply that health is a human right and everyone deserves to be able to access healthcare and, and, and live a healthy life. That's a pretty kind of key message that is more evident in rural and remote communities. Mm. Another thing that is much more clear in, in those contexts, I believe, is the connection between humans and our environment. And when I say environment, I'm not just talking about the physical environment, like, like the, the trees and water and air. I mean in the context, the circumstances in which we live. It was really clear to me um, at a, at a critical point in my training, just as I was finishing my, my, my rural journalist training, I was working in a, in a region called the Torres Strait Islands. Mm-hmm. It's an archipelago between the northeastern tip of Australia and Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. It's actually a very busy border region. And so in all these islands, we could see that some communities tended to be healthier than others. And in fact, some people tended to be living longer, even in, in neighbouring islands. And when we looked into this, we could see that even though the communities looked similar, there were fundamental differences around um, sort of uh, water, uh, sanitation, hygiene, shelter, food, and then other factors like levels of education, employment, overcrowding, in addition to the established risk factors that we know about, like, for example, smoking or or being overweight. Mm -hmm. And if you zoom out, I did a a study on this uh, quite a few years ago looking at what are the factors that make the most difference in terms of people's life expectancies in remote communities around Australia? And we found these same patterns over and over again. Communities with the 
highest rates of unemployment, the lowest rates of uh, sort of education access or completion, the highest uh, or the greatest problems with food, water, shelter. These were the communities with the with the most health problems. Mm-hmm. You zoom that even further, that problem exists all around the world. So I think if you if you train as a doctor and you work with patients, you sort of have an understanding of these problems in the background, but you usually don't see them with your own eyes. Whereas in a, in a, in a rural community or remote community, uh, you, you, you're living in the community, you understand the, the circumstances. And when you go and visit people in their homes or their huts or wherever that may be, whatever context that may, may be, you can see firsthand how those factors directly affect our individual and, and, and population health. It's these socioeconomic factors that indirectly influences someone's access to healthcare services, isn't it? It's not the obvious ones that that you would just see in, in, in a clinical setting, but all the factors in their lives that affect the decisions that they are able to make. That's right. And often the decisions that they are unable to make too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in a remote community in, in, a, in Australia, for example, um, an Indigenous community now, uh, the only food available is usually one shop, mm-hmm. and it is it is time consuming and logistically complicated and expensive to to transport food to that shop. But if in that shop there are very few fresh fruit and vegetables, and they are in very poor condition and very expensive, whereas there are there are energy dense, nutrient poor fast food, fried mm-hmm. foods available for, for much, much cheaper prices, it doesn't matter how motivated or educated or informed you are as a consumer, as a parent, as a mother trying to feed your children. If you can only afford the, the rubbish, then that's what you are going to feed your children. So it's, it's often not about choices or decisions. It, it's about availability and, and options. And so a lot of these you know, social and environmental determinants of health, as we as we refer to them, uh, often sort of have economic inequalities and problems beneath them. And so, the older I get, and the the hopefully the wiser I get, and perhaps the more cynical I get, the more I realise that as doctors, we're really just treating the the downstream problems. By the time mm-hmm. people are, are are sick and 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 have chronic diseases, the damage is often already done. Mm-hmm. We need to address those upstream factors of which, you know, climate change is a key one, but definitely not the only one. There are all those things we talked about earlier, education, employment, food, water, shelter, uh, sanitation, hygiene. These are the most important things we need to be doing to improve the health of people around the world. Mm. Um, On that note of what you mentioned earlier about things being expensive, Lachlan, you know, I want to address misconceptions, right? Do you think it's a misconception that healthcare services in rural and remote settings by virtue of its location will always be limited? Is it impossible to provide quality healthcare? Because people seem to think that uh, it's expensive. It's going to be expensive to send people. It's going to be expensive to build facilities. It's going to be expensive to transport things as well. Um, How do you address that? Well, you've probably already um, picked up from our from our chat, Suan, that I that I am a firm believer in in um, sort of equity when mm-hmm. it comes to healthcare. I believe everyone should be able to access healthcare that is of of good quality, mm-hmm. is appropriate for their needs, and is able to be sustained. Now, not every town or village or, or community around the world needs a fancy hospital that can do 
you know, brain surgery and, and liver transplants, mm-hmm. right? Um, I am of the firm belief that every community should have access to trained health professionals, uh, you know, doctors, nurses, community health workers who can um, provide that what we call primary care needs for the community that can help people stop getting sick and can treat them when they become sick. And then that 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 primary care, that first point of contact, which is the most cost-effective aspect of, of, of the health system, if we get it right, that's where we get greatest return on investment mm-hmm. if we're trying to improve the health of communities is investing in primary care. That's been studied and demonstrated over and over again. If that primary healthcare system is supported by secondary and tertiary healthcare, that is referral to hospitals with surgical services and then hospitals with those other fancy services that I mentioned, that's that's what makes a, a functional and effective health system. Um, and the the cost issue that you're talking about um, is is a challenge, but it's not the only challenge. It's not even mm-hmm. the most important challenge. I don't think we don't need to be bringing. Uh, you know, brain surgery to these remote communities. The most important thing is that those communities have access to to trained health professionals who are supported by those by those services. And as uh, as I think you're aware, Suan, one of my particular interests is in is in telehealth mm-hmm. and, and and digital health and and the the advantages that that um, advances in technology are bringing around the world. Um, I I have worked and have many colleagues who work for. In, in telemedicine, digital health, virtual medicine spaces. And that is, it's a true game changer mm-hmm. as communities around the world, including in, in, in many developing countries, are able to access reasonable um, internet services. The, we're able to sort of leapfrog a lot of the in-between steps that, that um, historically have been required. And you can have doctors and nurses being beamed into remote communities to be able to diagnose and provide initial treatment for patients in some of the most remote parts of the world. Um, so look, it's it's not a it's not a sort of one-shot solution, mm. but investing in primary care and taking advantage of advances in technology to to provide you know digital, remotely delivered telemedicine services are I think key to the the, the, the next few years of improving health for, for many rural and remote communities around the world. Mm. It's not about one big grand solution that will solve all the problems, isn't it? It's about steps mm. along the way that, that push us toward that direction. Um, what about your role now with MSF as the Tropical Diseases and Planetary Health Advisor? Because on paper, in theory, that sounds very different from what you do on the ground as a rural generalist, isn't it? Um, look, I still am a, I'm a proud rural journalist when I mm-hmm. when I um, work back here in Australia and when I, I work as a doctor in MSF projects and other places where I where I have the good fortune to be able to travel. My role um, at MSF headquarters in Geneva as the tropical diseases and planetary health advisor, as you mentioned, combines my interests in in tropical infectious diseases and also the, the planetary health side of things. So I'm able to support our colleagues in, in various projects around the world, deal with the complex cases of, of uh, infectious diseases that they're encountering, but also look at some of the, the bigger picture the problems, mm. challenges, opportunities. So whether that's uh, a, a vaccination campaign, whether that's adopting a new technology, um, for example, in, in Honduras at the moment, we are um, introducing 
uh, uh, 80s mosquitoes infected with the Wolbachia bacteria that mm. re- reduces the transmission of dengue fever, as has been done in Australia and several Pacific Islands, several countries in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia as well. Yeah, so this this is you know a truly game changing. Uh, let's call it a technology, even though it's a it's a sort of biological, uh, sort of naturally occurring technology um, that has the, the potential to to well, ultimately the aim is to almost eliminate dengue fever. And so that that combination of being involved with the the diagnosis and treatment of the disease in the individual patient, with being involved with a project that is trying to tackle the problem at a at a population level, that's what uh, that's what it really gives me the the sort of the, the, the pleasure and stimulation in my in my current role. Mm. Um, I, when I was reading up about um uh, about your you as well, Lachlan, you know, and I know you've published a, a memoir called Life and Death, um, Life and Death Decisions. Now you've been frank about how difficult your job can be, and you spoke about that earlier on as well. It's not all rainbows and sunshines, right? It's a difficult <laughs> job. How how much has it impacted your mental health, and how have you coped? Because we often hear about doctors struggling with burnout whenever wherever they are, right? It's not an easy job. Um, how has it been like for you? Um, yeah, look, thanks for thanks for bringing up Sue Ann, and and thanks for mentioning my book. I I wrote the book not in order to write a memoir, but mm-hmm. in order to uh, really um, disseminate some messages about really important issues that I that I you know feel that the, the public and the world needs to know about, including about climate change, including about Indigenous health inequity, including about the rise and rise of drug-resistant infections and other issues like the, the sort of the health workforce needs in rural communities and, and things like... Um, like uh, like mental health or, or or mental ill health in the medical profession. Mm. So the the memoir was just really the vehicle to deliver those messages. Um, I'm not by any means alone in having experienced uh, depression, suicidality, and burnout. Uh, medical doctors are usually towards the top of the list, if not number one on the list of professions with the highest rates of depression and suicide. That is tragic but true. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm giving a talk to a, to a, one of the biggest hospitals in Australia, giving a talk to their junior doctors, and I'm including a message about self-care in that because it is it is terrible and unacceptable, I think, that we are not taking better care of the people that we entrust and expect to take care of us. Mm-hmm. Um, doctors... Uh, work extremely hard. I think that's true around the world. And I think that maybe the general public perhaps don't appreciate exactly precisely how hard doctors work and how many hours they work and how stressful and physically exhausting and mentally fatiguing that is. Um, And I think the fact that there is already this huge uh, psychological and physical and emotional strain on health professionals, doctors and, and, and nurses and others, and then to to add to that, when there is bullying and sexism and racism and and you know poor treatment and underpayment <laughs> with all these other factors, you think how how is this fair? How mm. is this acceptable? How is this sustainable? And and I think in Australia there has been for a long time. This sort of this silence, this taboo about doctors being able to speak about the the pressures that they're under, the 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 stress that they're experiencing, 
and and the problems that they have with their mental health with their with their colleagues um i'm pleased to see that that the veil is lifting on that and i'm i'm humbled to be able to contribute my voice to that um but i'm very aware that 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 the problem remains enormous around the world uh and i think we have a responsibility to to speak up and 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 speak out on behalf of our colleagues and do our best to ensure that the doctors feel feel safe in the workplace feel mm-hmm. supported by their colleagues and feel secure in 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 sharing their concerns and saying hey i'm not okay Mm. Coming back to your role as a rural um, generalist, right? What do you think it takes to work in rural and remote medicine? Because, like you say, you're you're a jack of all trades. Um, what are the values, values and skills that you think are needed beyond what you can what you can teach students in med school? That's an excellent question, Suan. I think what is uh, a, a core characteristic of of most rural generalists, and and is certainly a very desirable. <laughs> personality trait is is having a sense of adventure i think if you're if you're you're very timid and conservative and 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 risk averse then it would be difficult for you to accept the 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 challenges and the and the the scope and the the sort of complexity of 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 the sort of infinite possibilities of things (laughs) that you need to deal with um so i think having having a sense of adventure being flexible Mm. And 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 able to adapt to circumstances is key. Um, you know, as I've described in my book, I've had to uh, help take out an appendix by torchlight uh, on a on a labour ward after the ceiling of our hospital caved in after a cyclone. Um, I've had to treat uh, snake bite and shotgun patients in a swamp in a civil war zone. I've had to. Um, render a patient unconscious and transport transport them by boat in a in a storm after they had seizures that refused to stop i mean you you need to be able to roll up your sleeves and 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 figure figure out what to do um when when you are the rural journalist you are often the only doctor or one of very few doctors in the places where you're working you need to be very adaptable and resilient the other um sort of key characteristic i guess is accepting that you're you're never going to be a specialist in in one domain to the extent that you feel like you kind of know everything. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I hope there's not too many doctors out there that feel like they know everything, but I know a few specialists who maybe think that, um, <laughs> that you, you you make a compromise, right? If we all have a certain amount of of of, of capacity mm-hmm. and knowledge and, and expertise that we can gain as a rural journalist, you choose to spread that broadly rather than going and sort of narrow and deep. So that, that's a that's a sort of a, a philosophical uh, and strategic decision that you have to make and be comfortable with. Mm. And I guess this might be going a bit off tangent, but um, you know, here in Malaysia, when doctors are posted to healthcare facilities, and not to paint all healthcare workers with a broad stroke, but generally there is a hesitation um, among many younger doctors to be posted to more rural and remote healthcare facilities um, for various reasons. You know, they're far away from their families. There's a lack of opportunity to learn um, that you might get in a tertiary hospital. There's also the lack of resources when it comes to these facilities. Um, what would I guess your take? Away message be as someone who has chosen to work in these settings. Yeah, it's it's a great point, Suan. And the phenomenon you're describing um, is is very common around the world. This sort of this mandatory, you know, rural placement. It's often a kind of a a rite of passage for mm-hmm. doctors. 
I understand why it, why it happens. It's it's logical on the part of the the health system or the, the, the politics that, mm-hmm. that you know junior doctors, you know medical students and junior doctors sort of have to go and do their time in the rural remote areas. The the, the real tragedy and and the and the, the shortfall, the gap that I think we need to address is the fact that this is this is sort of done as almost as a as a as a penance. I don't want to say punishment, but it's sort of time that these doctors have to do until mm-hmm. they can escape and return to the city and, and do some sort of specialty training. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is a missed opportunity there and doctors should be able to, you know, my, my dream would be that doctors, wherever they are you know, working and training in the world, have the opportunity to um, work in, in rural and remote locations but be able to train as rural journalists while they are working there with support from senior colleagues, with a curriculum, with a, a sort of a, a defined vocation, a career path that they can be walking through and towards such that that can be their their chosen discipline. If they don't need to just do their time and, and survive and escape, that can be the career. But that mm-hmm. requires support and commitment and resourcing as well as supervision and assessment and, and you know, professional development beyond, um, beyond the sort of specialty qualification. And it's with that in mind that uh, some colleagues and I several years ago set up an organisation called Rocketship. Mm-hmm. It's an acronym, stands for Remote Opportunities for Clinical Knowledge, Education, Training and Support for Health in the Pacific. Rocketship was set up with, with exactly that, that phenomenon and those, those health professionals in mind. And we're pleased to these days be um, uh, supporting doctors uh, across uh, five or six different countries Training as as rural journalists or, or rural family community medicine specialists, while staying in their own countries, working in their own communities, working towards a qualification that will enable them to stay and work to the top of their scope. Um, and yeah, my my sort of dream would be for that type of model to be available and accessible all around the world. So doctors working in rural communities aren't aren't, aren't sort of doing it for the minimum amount of time and then leaving as soon as they can, mm-hmm. but embracing it and, and being able to provide quality, uh, safe, sustainable care to rural communities uh, in the long term. All right. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Lachlan. It's been a pleasure, Suan. Thanks again for having me. That was Dr. Lachlan McIver, Rural Generalist and the Tropical Diseases and Planetary Health Advisor with Médecins Sans Frontières. If you missed any part of today's show or you want to check out other Good Things episodes, you can look them up on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Lim Suen and this has been Good Things, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.